Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to this hour. I've got Dr. Tim Walsh in studio, and he's sporting one of those haircuts you get at a barbershop. <laughs> Unlike other guests that do the, do it themselves. So I'm just saying, uh, he's vice president at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, and we're here today to talk about 10 of the mental health after effects of 2020. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Bill. Really appreciate it. I missed you. Thank it's you. I to, missed it's, you, it's too. It's good to see your it's face. So it's nice good to, to be you. with you. Yeah. yeah uh, thank you. It's been a crazy year, and I know it's affected the way people have lived their lives, and they've been... Um, dealing with more and more addiction issues and self-medication. And I want to talk now about the 10 mental health after effects. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Bill, yeah, in fact, one of my intentions is just to affirm, to validate people to, that what you're going through is really common. And so I wanted to talk about some of the things that people are going through. And this is based on my own experience, based on all the clients we work with at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge, but also based on research. And the first thing is people are probably seeing in themselves that they're having problems with concentration and memory and recall. Whoa. And, and there's that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and so you even hear people saying, you know, do I have early dementia? Uh, do I have Alzheimer's disease? That kind of thing. And so there's actually a term for that, and it's called pandemic brain fog. Whoa. So pandemic brain fog. You, your brain was affected by 2020, and it's not just, of course, the pandemic. We had social unrest. We had political division. We, it was just an unbelievable and historic year. So I just wanted to affirm to people that it's not necessarily that you're having a cognitive decline, but you did have some, you know, you did have some effects on your brain, and you are in recovery right now. Your brain is in recovery. Oh, I've just gotten my money's worth. Oh, seriously. Should I I leave now? No, this could end right now. (laughs) Because, you know, I've thought about some of the memory stuff and you and you think, well, why am I having trouble recalling that? Exactly. And because I still feel like my brain's relatively sharp. Yeah. But if it's if it's a little bit of a pandemic brain fog, that's kind of good to know. It is. And I think almost everyone will recover from that. But just realize that what we just went through was historic Uh, What people experienced is the term now is called collective trauma. And the collective trauma is we went through this all together, didn't we? Yes. And because we went through it all together, uh, it actually compounds. And we all had to care for one another. and, And we got tapped with our compassion, our care for one another during that time. And because of that collective uh, trauma, uh, we, we are struggling. We're struggling with even even having feelings uh, for ourselves, for other other people. But so that's 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 a second one. Bill is his collective trauma. Yeah. Tim, do you uh, do you do crossword puzzles or do you try to recall your locker combination from ninth grade? <laughs> I mean, is there something that you can do to try to exercise your brain to kind of refire it if it's, yeah. if you have this pandemic fog? And, and that is what people are doing. They're doing chess. They're doing Sudoku. Okay. They're doing things like like that. But I would say that primarily we were affected relationally. There was so yes. much distancing and isolation. And, of course, we had to be worried about each other. We didn't know if the other person was a carrier or That's not, true. if we were a carrier or not. And so, and so 
we are social animals, and we, are, we were designed by God to be in relationship with one another, and we weren't. We weren't. Even in our, in our, our families, we even had some distancing, didn't we? And, mm-hmm. so, and so I think that is primary, is, is trying to get back to normal as much as that's possible uh, in terms of our relationships and our daily structure and our uh, self-care and, and uh, uh, in our diet and so on, trying to remember what normal was to best of your ability and then trying to bring back more of those things back into our lives. That is going to what's refresh our brain. Mm-hmm. Dr. Yeah. Tim Walsh is my guest. He's vice president of Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. He's also a licensed psychologist. This is why we're getting all of this wonderful wisdom from Tim on the mental health after effects of 2020. That's a big one, the pandemic brain fog. What What next? Yeah, so this is we're hearing this all over the place, but we have, even before the pandemic, we had epidemic levels of anxiety and stress out there. And, and of course, anxiety stress uh, tends to pair with depression. And so with younger people, especially, they're reporting over 50% rates of people experiencing what we would consider a clinical level of uh, stress or anxiety. And what everyone has been uh, essentially reporting is what's called chronic or toxic stress. And so chronic stress is simply stressors that aren't going away. And they didn't go away, did they? They were always in the background of our brains. They're like background noise in our brains. And then the toxic piece is when you're in an environment where you cannot escape the stressors. That's what becomes toxic levels of stress. Uh, so some of us had to work in, live in uh, high crime environments uh, where there's a lot of violence, a lot of disruption, that kind of thing. We had to care for people who were always in that escalated say, uh, state of anxiety and stress, and they, they came across it with a lot of agitation and so on. Uh, well, that's chronic and it's toxic mm. because you can't get away from it. All right. Well, that's it. Very interesting. What up? Yeah. 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 So by the way, folks, you know, as you're, as you're listening to this, you know, so if you're, if you're feeling like you're struggling with physical fatigue and low energy and tiredness still, uh, that's an after effect. And that comes with chronic stress and and anxiety. So just realize that. And, and yes, over time, your energy level is going to pick up again, but uh, that I would say that is a result. And, and so here I want to put in that we not, it's not just collective trauma, but with that trauma, that is an after effect of it's post trauma, right? Mm -hmm. That's post trauma. And you naturally then feel physical fatigue and low energy and tiredness. So that comes along with everything we just went through in 2020. Oh, that's resonating, I'm sure, with a lot of people right now. Yeah, mm. yeah, very good. Very good. Yeah, if you want me to keep going? Please, uh, yeah. Okay, oh, good. Yeah. So the next one, uh, <laughs> people who go through trauma and also have lived in toxic stress, what they develop is what's called hypervigilance. And so you may, you may you experience that as paranoia, like you're always looking over your shoulder, you're always looking around, you're much more acutely aware of your surroundings, you're looking for what's coming next, you're expecting the unexpected. Uh, that's called hypervigilance. And of course, that's really good when you're in truly uh, a threatening environment, and that's what, uh, that's what we were designed to uh, respond to. But if you're always in that state of mind of hypervigilance and fear, by the way, some of that's rational, some of that's irrational, uh, then again, you have constant cortisol and epinephrine Mm. and norepinephrine and uh, adrenaline uh, flowing through your body. And, of course, that causes not just inflammation, but that's what causes long-term health problems and mental health problems that go along with it. I mean, Tim, did you experience this? You were walking like in a grocery store and 
as you come around the corner, someone encounters you and they practically jump away. Exactly. Like, oh my, I'm too close to this person. Yes. And I think of the the, the way that they would feel so threatened all the time. Mm -hmm. When do you ever relax? I mean, all you're doing is grocery shopping and yet you've got this fight or flight response. Yeah, all all the time. All the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what I said is like I'd be biking, Bill. And as I'm biking down the road, people would, they would like, and I don't think it's because I was the way I was driving, but they would, <laughs> but they would, they would, they would leap, they would leap yeah. out of the way. And I'd look at them like, really? Yeah. Which means they have no concept, by the way, of how a virus has passed. But, uh, but also, you know, that level of fearfulness, wow, that's off the charts. That is off the charts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're a fight or flight all the time. And those cortisol levels, if they stay up that high for too long, that's going to mess with your adrenals and everything, isn't it? It's Listen a, to me talk. What am I, some kind of doctor here? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what am I, I talking about? I know radio. nothing. I know. <laughs> exactly. No, that, that, that is the effect. And Disregard it's... everything I just said. <laughs> this is not medical advice. Yes, doctor, your own doctor. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very good. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. It has those short-term effects that we're talking about, but the long-term effects is now we're in the residual phase of a lot of that, and it's hanging on, and we're going, what is this? And of course, part of us is denying what we just went through in 2020 and, and, and i'm just asking us to just be gracious to ourselves and to realize we just went through historic times and and that is why we are experiencing what we're experiencing you're not being a big baby uh you're not being fragile you're not you're, you're actually having a very natural response to what we have experienced in 2020 very good cool. What's next? Yeah, good. So the next one, I, I've actually titled this Mild to Moderate uh, Agoraphobia. Uh, and I know there's other phobic names for this, but if you notice that people right now, a lot of people, it, they're, not, they're not just afraid of uh, like uh, uh, open spaces. Some people get nervous or anxious just going outdoors because they've been indoors for so Long And then, of course, because we're all been hypervigilant uh, about uh, the virus and not being contagious or getting it, uh, what happens with that is we also are afraid of uh, still people uh, and crowds. And so notice that in, in yourself. Notice that in yourself that you trained up your mind and your body to think that way, to feel that way. And then, of course, we got bombarded through 2020 with messages absolutely everywhere mm-hmm. uh, about this. And that is actually now programmed within us. So even though some of us have, or many of us have been vaccinated, a lot of us are post-COVID and we have some now natural immunity and so on, uh, there is there is still that sense that there's always this threat out there. And, of course, there is some threat. Let's be let's be rational about mm-hmm. that. There is some threat, so that's that's partly why we we have to continue to be on alert, right? Because we're starting to hear of uh, second infections of COVID. Uh, just today, the CDC said if you know if you're in a spread area for COVID, you should have masks on again. That kind of thing. Well, that actually is also what leads to all the feelings and the after effects that I'm talking about. Is just when you started to psychologically let down and let yourself relax and start to believe that things were going to turn back to normal. Boom, it comes back at you again, and then it comes back at you again. And so what starts to happen, like with animals in a situation like that, is called learned helplessness. I can't avoid the shock, so I'm going to actually stay in the shock. And because even when I least expect it, expect it, and it's going to happen, right? So that's that's what starts to happen to us psychologically. We were gritting our teeth. We were enduring. We thought we got through it. We thought we could psychologically let down. And now we're getting these messages that, oh, my goodness, we're going to have to do some of these things again. Mm-hmm. Good. 
Good. Yeah, and this, the next one is, um, and this is, a, again, where we need some more grace and kindness with one another, is the truth is, let's be honest, we weren't on our best behavior over 2020 either. You know, maybe maybe it brought out the best in some of us, and maybe we were at our best in a lot of different ways. So, you know, well, praise God for that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also a lot of us were in closed-in quarters with our kids and with other uh, adults, and we weren't getting out. And, and of course, you have all these other you know, mental health after effects that I'm talking about. And so what it started happening is you, you have more relational stress. There is agitation and irritability with one another. And of course, in the extreme, what we're hearing is that there was more domestic abuse as a result of that. And, and now they're predicting a wave of divorces and, and separations as a result of the fact uh, that we were we were cooped up. And uh, and so that that is, you know, just first of all, the, the, uh, the self-compassion on that one is, first of all, none of us do well in that situation. Nobody. Animals don't do well in that situation. We don't do well in that situation where we're closed up, we're isolated, we're in closed quarters and that kind of thing. Um, uh, this is a bad joke, uh, Bill, but somebody asked me that. <laughs> maybe that's the only ones I tell. I, yeah, don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Thank you for prefacing it. <laughs> yeah. It goes without saying that this is going to be a bad joke. Yeah, that's right. Uh, anyway, uh, somebody asked me the other day, uh, they said, well, what's with this Minnesota nice culture where we act as everything's fine, everything's good, and we like everybody, and, and, and maybe we don't, right? And uh, and so what's with that? Well, what's with that is we, we tend to spend a lot of time indoors with people about six months out of the year, and so we got to we got to reduce interpersonal conflict and stress. Well, what happens when you can't get away with that? Uh, what happens when that lasts for over a year? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens with you're always with the same people, you know, and the things that you could overlook or you could forgive or, you know, that kind right. of thing, you know, all of a sudden it's in your face every single day. Well, that's what we experienced. And so just, again, be gracious, be kind to one another about that uh, as it relates to yeah. that relational uh stress. Yeah. yeah. Dr. Tim Walsh is my guest. We're going to take a little break. He is the vice president at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. We're talking about the 10 mental health after effects of 2020. We'll be right back. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Dr. Tim Walsh from Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. He's the vice president there. Big wig. I like that. He's also a psychologist, and he's telling us the 10 mental health after effects of 2020. And I can't tell you, Tim, how helpful this is. No, thank you. And I want to say, if you have missed any of this, because you just climbed in your in your car, you're going to want to go to uh, the beginning and hear this uh, podcast when it becomes available at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, let's pick up uh, where we last left off, which I think was kind of a lame joke. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, so uh, what we're talking about is, is is Minnesota nice and why do we have to be Minnesota nice to each other? And the, and the joke, of course, is because we have to spend six months indoors with one another. <laughs> so, uh, and, and we have to learn. We have to learn to uh, not bring up everything that bothers us with one another. So, uh, yeah, that was the lame joke. <clears throat> um. Yeah, so, so the next one, Bill, is in uh, this one. So I'm, I'm getting a little more serious, of course, with, with after effects of the men- mental health after effects of 2020. So the next one is <clears throat> a lot of us went through 2020 and the pandemic, and we say to ourselves, well, at least, and that's a Minnesota way of thinking too, right? Well, it could have been worse, and at least it wasn't this. But the truth is all of us experienced grief and loss during 2020, all of us. 
and some was worse than others. That's absolutely correct. And so let's start off. You know, there's many people, like I, I know a number of people, uh, friends of friends, parents of friends and so on, who died uh, during 2020, and they didn't get to uh, visit them in the nursing home. They didn't get to go to the funeral and that kind of thing. Well, that's that's a huge loss. You, it's, you, you never get that back. You, you never get that back. And so uh, so that is, that's more the extreme of the loss that people had. But the truth is, if you think about kids who weren't able to go to graduation, people weren't, the kids who weren't able to go to prom, uh, kids who weren't able to go to school uh, with one another, another uh, people lost jobs during this time. The unemployment rate went way up. There's just, and financial losses, it just goes on and on and on. And just, so partly, we now can at least take somewhat of a breath and we can say, okay, um, maybe it is time to grieve, as the Bible would say. You know, there's a time for everything uh, uh, under heaven, right? And and maybe maybe it is time to recognize that we lost a lot in 2020. And I know what we did to get through 2020 is we we thought about, oh yeah, but there's gain too. We have time with each other, and we things have slowed down, and and the pressures perhaps of work weren't as great for some people, uh, that kind of thing. But the truth is, we also lost quite a bit, didn't we? And so. So that's the thing is 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 the grieving process. And by the way, you know and I have talked about this, Bill. In the grieving process, we the the Holy Spirit is a gentle person who brings to our mind those things that we need to heal from when we're ready to heal from. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to have that conversation with the Holy Spirit and just say, you know, Holy Spirit, you know, will you inform me? Will you inform me what it is that I really truly am grieving about? Is it is it safe now? Can I can I grieve now? Can I actually heal from that grief and that loss? So, um, I just want to say to people that yes, you, you didn't have to experience necessarily the extreme of somebody dying in your life, but uh, we lost quite a bit in 2020, and let's just let's just accept that. Let's accept that and let's deal with that. Let's let's try to heal from that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's. It's very difficult to embrace, but it's the truth. And it is. And I love the fact that you're suggesting that the Holy Spirit reveals those moments in that time to start healing. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the next one is also, it's a little more serious, but it's also understandable. And a lot of us are experiencing that. So psychologists call it dissociation, not disassociation, but dissociation. And it's just the ability of us to emotionally and intellectually and even in our bodies distance ourselves from pain and circumstances that are really beyond our ability to deal with when we're actually in shock. We're able to dissociate uh, emotionally, mentally uh, from that. Well, some of us got really good at that during 2020. And we actually went into uh, this almost semi-comatose state in terms of our consciousness. A lot of us used short-term strategies to get through. Some of us started using alcohol more, and some people got uh, started using drugs during that time. Some people binge-watched TV to the point where they were almost in, you know, like a, a psychological uh, state of, of fog all the time. Well, mm-hmm. we used those coping strategies, short-term coping strategies, and what we started to feel is that this sense of things aren't real, I'm not really here, this isn't happening. Well, that's dissociation. And so, of course, the, the, the solution to that is we actually have to allow ourselves, our consciousness, our awareness, our spirit, actually, to be here, to be now, to be present, to be real, to be in relationship again. And that, that is, and, and so some people uh, experience that as detachment. They don't feel connected in their relationships anymore. And, of course, that's natural as well, that you would feel that sense of detachment. Well, what's the, what's the solution to detachment, right? 
And so we got to come back together again. We got to allow ourselves to open up again. We got to allow ourselves to be in relationship uh, again. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe people aren't experiencing that to extreme, but all of us feel some sense of that right now. I was talking to a friend who admitted to me that he felt like he lost some of his small talk skills. Yeah. Yeah. You get a little out of practice. Exactly. And it was a little harder to make small talk. It is. Yeah, right. Again, how do we how do we connect and how do we even get our minds focused in on another human being and then think about, you know, how how do we even talk to that person and and be in a conversation yeah, with them? Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Um the the one thing you and I were talking about before uh, we got on the air is uh so in the larger society uh, what is happening right now is you have a lot of people, intellectuals, academics, and mostly politicians in the media who are challenging every day even our sense of reality, of truth, of of, of what we've known to be true up to this moment. And that and we, we're, we're sensing this, and there's this what what's called cognitive dissonance or incongruence in our brain every single day, and we're starting to think, am I insane or was just last year this was a different reality and now it's this reality and now people are trying to push us into this new reality. It feels like, well, that's called gaslighting. Gaslighting is when people are challenging your sense of reality all the time. Why? The whole point of gaslighting is to control. Mm -hmm. It's to gain influence. It's to now make their ideas, their agenda. Uh, And I just want to affirm that that's going on. Mm-hmm. That is going on. You're you're not crazy. That is actually going on. We don't have to get all conspiratorial about it, but that's that's true. And so our sense of reality is challenged uh, in that way because I think some some folks, those folks, uh, are being opportunistic and pushing their thinking, their truth, their reality, uh, and their their agenda uh, during this time. So I I know that's the edgiest thing I was about was going to say. But <laughs> okay. I, I just want to I just want to say, Bill, that I, I you know a lot of people are reporting that, mm-hmm. and they're even asking, well, what is true anymore, and 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 what's even going to happen, and how is this pace of change we're experiencing going to continue to fly into the future the way yeah. it is? And when trust erodes, then you start to feel way off your game. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Good. And so yeah. And so just go further with the relational piece, and so then then we start to feel uh, disconnected and isolated. Mm-hmm. You know, and and what comes along with that then is 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 one of the final uh, uh, mental health after effects. Is uh, again, even before the pandemic, there was an epidemic of depression and suicidal ideation, especially young uh, amongst young people. Um, but we had a lot of things compounding. You had uh, drug and alcohol abuse. You have overdoses. You have, uh, you know, all these things. And that, that was called the death of despair, if you remember when you and I talking mm-hmm. about that. But what's happening is if you take all of these mental health uh, after effects is yeah, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. Oh. Yeah, hopelessness and helplessness. And that, of course, is what feeds yeah. depression. Tim, I wish we had more time because I feel like we've addressed some of the after effects, and I know you've got lots of solutions sure. that we could be discussing as well. So maybe part two, are you open to that? Absolutely. There'll be no money, <laughs> like usual. But if you could do part two, I would love that because yeah. this has been wonderful, and I want to talk more about oh, what solutions look like for people who might be suffering from this. But thank you for being here, and if you have a drug or or addiction issue of any kind, you can always check out Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. Uh, They're the amazing place. We'll take a break. When we come back, Josh Choi is going to be joining me. He's a virtuoso violinist, and I'm going to hear about his music career and his life. That's all coming up next. You 
are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. So I don't know how much you listen to the show, but if you listen enough, you know that I'm a, a big fan of violin music. I, I love jazz violin. I play Stefan Grappelli quite a bit, and I love Joshua Bell. Um, so I do love violin music. Violins make me weep. Every time I hear a violin, you add strings to anything, and I'm, I'm choking up. But I'm an easy cry. But my guest in studio is Josh Choi. He's a graduate of the University of Northwestern here, just graduated last December, and did an incredible recital, and he is a virtuoso. And when I first called him a violin player, I was, I've already been corrected. He plays viola, like I know the difference. So, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, for starters, tell us the difference between a violin and a viola. Yeah, so they're part of the same exact family um, from the violin family. The viola is kind of the alto to the soprano. So it is a larger instrument played in the same fashion um, and has the same four strings, except the lowest string goes uh, lower. So we don't have the higher end of the violin, um, but our range is extended on the lower end. So if you can play a viola, can you also play a violin? Is it basically the same kind of instrument? Theoretically, um, there's obviously the note distribution and where the notes are on the instrument are a little different, but it's very easy to go back from the two. Yeah. So I think I read about Joshua Bell that when he was like three years old, he took rubber bands and strung them around the dresser in his little uh, bedroom. And by the end of the day, he was playing like a song on (laughs) rubber bands. And there was a giftedness that I think his parents saw in him that was like, well, I think we've got something here. Did your parents see the same thing? A little bit. Um, both of my parents grew up um, as musicians, okay. and they were, um, you know, very active um, in the music world. And it was just a part of everything. My dad was a guitarist and a vocalist, so okay. that was very common throughout. And yeah, it was always around me. I took piano lessons when I was younger. It didn't quite stick, and then elementary school came around, and opportunity for orchestra yeah. came up. What was your mom playing? What was her? My mom was a vocalist okay. um, and took piano lessons when she was younger, so she had a little bit of that so background. So you heard music in the womb? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. My dad, um, my dad being a guitarist, also plays bass guitar in a lot of worship bands. Um, and my mom remembers being pregnant with me and me actually moving around when the music was playing. <laughs> Is that um, right? Yep. Yeah. So that's that's at least what the tale says. So yeah. So you started playing uh, violin or viola? Viola. Um, okay. You yeah. started right out of the. Out- out of the gate playing viola. Yeah, which is um, more and more common now. A lot of times um, with older, um, the older generation, it was a lot more common to start on violin and then um, later in your career to switch to viola. Um, but luckily now with um, lots of funding for music schools and the opportunity to actually provide the instruments, um, it's more common to see people starting on viola and not on violin. Mm-hmm. What style of training did you receive when you started? I'm very much classically trained. Okay. So grew up kind of, your, you know, good old fourth grade orchestra, started there, um, you know, used the talents as well, um, have a pretty good ear, so played in the worship bands a lot, um, had the opportunity in middle school to play with the International House of Prayer worship teams as well down in Kansas City. Um, so I had a little bit of training there, but very, very much classically trained. Yeah, I hear some of these styles of training, like the Suzuki style, and mm-hmm. I don't know much about that. It's just something you hear, and is that like a standardized way of 
teaching kids how to play violin or viola? It is. It's a it's a different pedagogy. It's just, you know, how do you... It's a different style of teaching how to read the alphabet or, you know, a different style of teaching math. It's the same thing. It's just a different school of pedagogy. Yeah. And you can't play the violin or the viola without reading music, can you? Not really. Um, a lot of, you know, more, you know, folk... Uh, folk focused um, musicians don't often um, sometimes read music. Um, it's not a must have to play the instrument, but if you're looking at a classical career, you're definitely going to be reading music. Yeah, for sure. And I assume you do that, of yes. course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking you, you start young, and is it a love that you develop, or is it something that feels like an obligation because your folks are paying for lessons and getting your room and practice? Depends on the person that you are. A lot of a lot of professionals will say that you know they didn't want to practice when they okay. were younger. For myself, it was never a chore. It was always my getaway. I never really got into sports or video games or much of that. It was yeah. It was mainly just viola. So my you know my parents remember when I just started. There you know every second of the day that I had, I'd be practicing. Yeah. And do you, were you were you playing uh, with friends ever? Did, did a little bit. Um, yeah. As I got later in my career, um, got you, better at actually playing the instrument myself. Um, you had the opportunity to play with. I mean, friends. did you have any friend who was a cellist and hey, come on over, we'll kill a couple hours? Yeah, we we definitely had some of those moments, especially you know, especially when I got to college. You yeah. know, having music majors around you, and you know, you're sick of practicing your your normal concerto, and you just you know go around and play um, just play around with your friends. Yeah. Josh Choi is my guest. He is a, uh, a virtuoso viola player, and he's also the uh, shop manager at the Paul A. Schmidt uh, Violin Shop in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. Been there a couple of years. And so when you came here to the University of Northwestern, Josh, do, were you a music major? Uh, yes. I started, um, I did a year of online PSEO as okay. a junior in high school, and then I was on campus as a viola performance major my senior year of high school. So you had more credits, um, you had more college credits in high school than I had in college after my first year. Really? Oh, sure. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. That is nuts. So I'm so curious about the disciplines that go into musical training. For people that play at your level, um, I'm fascinated with what the disciplines are, what the habits are, what, um, how many hours a day. I know know these questions have been asked before, but uh, I'm going to ask them again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it depends on what kind of season you're you're in. Um, a lot of you know, a lot of the top you know soloists will say that when they were in competition season, competing you know internationally, it's anywhere from four to six hours a day. Um, for for most, and that you know that depends on what instrument you're playing. As a wind player, you're not able to have the stamina oh, to right. practice really that long. For string players and piano players, um, we tend to be able to practice a little bit longer. So. Probably on average, you know, with a full-time job and things like that, about three hours. But um, and during my during my studies, it was a regular four hours a day. Mm-hmm. Wow! Mm-hmm. So when you're practicing, do you go, "Whoa, I am good"? <laughs> that 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 seldom really happens. Really? A lot of the time, it's oh, I can hear this, and I got to go fix that. So it is. It's a treat. You know, it's one of those things where you're always, you know, as musicians, always striving to be the best that you can, and there's yeah. always something to fix. Um, but when you get to performances, you kind of just have to live in the moment and just just enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, would you consider yourself perfectionist? Uh, definitely. Yeah. I don't know if perfectionist is the right word, but I strive to be very good at what I do because perfect for me is different than perfect for someone else. So I strive to be the best and the most polished version of me that I can. Yeah. Do you have uh, performance anxiety? 
Um, I think everyone does. If you're not anxious about it or you don't get nervous about it, I don't think you. I don't think you really care that much. It's more of as a performer, really knowing how to deal and cope with that anxiety and that um, nervousness when you get on stage. Yeah, yeah. The viola and the violins—they're such beautiful instruments. Yes. And of course, everybody who hears about violinists usually hear about their prized instrument, like their, mm-hmm. you know, some who have the Stradivarius, and yeah. you think, boy, they paid millions for that. Yeah. Um, and they're such beautiful instruments. Um, do you, uh, what's the range of prices for like a viola? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have the, you know, the $50, you know, instruments on eBay and Amazon, which I definitely don't recommend. Um, we, we call them instrument shaped objects at the music store, <laughs> I, uh, ISOs. Um, yeah. but a decent student level viola, um, right now on the market is right at around $800, $900, okay. um, brand new. Yeah. Um, if you're looking at upgrading as a serious player from around middle school, you're seeing a budget anywhere from two, maybe to thirty five hundred. Sure. Um, high school, you're seeing, you know, especially if you're wanting to be a music major, you know, anywhere d- depending on what you're able to afford, anywhere from five thousand. I have friends that went into college with thirty thousand dollar instruments. So really, it really depends wow. on a what you're looking for. I definitely was not one of those that went into college with a very expensive instrument. Um, and again, being able to fund that. So it depends on where you're at and where your finances are. Yeah, yeah. So I know that there's a constant struggle for parents because they want their their children to have a musical education and a musical background. And I think music helps make kids smarter too. It does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it wires the brain, I I think. So there's so many parents that would love their kids to get excited about music. What advice could you give mom and dad? Um, get them exposed to it and try and figure out what exactly, you know, what music they're into. All music is music. Um, so it might not be classical, it might be more folk, it might be country, it might be pop. Get them, get them into something like that. And at the bottom line, the student has to enjoy it. You always hear that, you know, I, you know, my parents forced me to take piano lessons when I was five and I never enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Find something that the student really enjoys. If you want music to be part of their life, have it around just in the atmosphere, whether it be classical or anything like that. Um, and figure out what sticks with the student. If they want to play and participate in it, then absolutely whatever the family is able to do. Um, but oftentimes, you know, there's always the performer and there's always a listener. They might be an appreciator um, of it as well, and that's just as fine. Yeah. How come, Josh, you didn't gravitate toward guitar? Because Dad's playing guitar. It'd be an easy, easy instrument to learn. I never really figured it out. It's it's actually very funny. When I was 12, um, I had taken... My dad was also a drummer, and so I learned drums just for rhythmic um, rhythmic integrity and learning rhythms because it's a lot of what drum is. Um, but I remember earlier in my life, I told myself I would never play guitar, and I don't know. I ended up huh. learning it. Huh. Um, but it was just one of those things that didn't really stick to me. It was The viola was, out, and, you know, aside from the violin and the cello, was more mesmerizing for me. Yeah. Um, I don't really know exactly what it is it was in that fourth grader's mind that, yeah. you know, stuck. But Yeah. Did you have a particular performance of seeing someone on the viola that kind of hit you between the eyes going, all right, this is what I want to do? You know, I don't think I really remember a moment like that. I know, um, thankfully, the the district that I went to um, and grew up in, the school district, um, was very, very appreciative and very supportive of the arts. So I remember third grade, um, we had the opportunity to go to Orchestra Hall and see a performance live there. 
Um, so that was, I think, my first exposure to classical music outside of, you know, at, you know YouTube and hearing things on the radio. Um, I never really, I don't remember ever a performance. Um, our school did like a little little performance, like choose your choose your instrument night where the teachers would play. Um, so I guess that would have been my first exposure to it, but I never had like, you know, a specific, like an Itzhak Perlman or like, um, a specific performer that really drew me to the instrument. Mm -hmm. Josh, I'd love for you to talk about why music is so important in our world and in our lives. Um, I, I think of, I play a five string banjo and I, I, I play it. People that play banjo um, like privacy because when they start playing, they get it, you know, but when you pull out the viola, people gather mm -hmm. and they want to hear because the music is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and t just talk about how important music is to us. Um, for me, at least it's a way of, for me, it's a release. Um, if there's any emotions or anything from the day that I'm, you know, that's kind of bottled up, it's, it's a way for me to release that. Um, but on the larger spectrum, it's, um, it's a way of communication. I think there's so many different ways that you can, you know, the same measure, the same note. There's so many different ways that any performer can play that single note. Um, so it is a very, very um, personal, personal art um, and being able to communicate things that aren't, you know, we can't transcend into words. You know, you hear the term like music is in, you know, is a language that everyone can understand. It's not necessarily that people can understand, but they can feel it um, outside of being, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, as a painter paints and seeing that visually. It's another way to communicate um, the human experience um, and being able to individually experience that in your own way because there's not a right or wrong way really at the end of the day how you listen to music. It's the fact that you listen to it and you feel something from it. Yeah. Josh Choi is my guest. He is a, a viola virtuoso and also uh, he is the... Uh, Shop manager at the Paul A. Schmidt Violin Shop in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more with Josh. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. What do you think of this, Josh? It's nice to listen to. It's just laid back. It is so laid back. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, always, it's always nice. It's just... Classical music is so stressful sometimes. <laughs> it can be very stressful. It is, yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, improv and all that. Yeah. I get a lot of requests when I play this artist uh, from listeners saying, well, what was the name of that song? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's nice just to have something nice and smooth just to listen to. Yeah. Um, not think about it much. Yeah. Josh Joy is my guest in studio. He is a viola virtuoso. And he's also uh, the shop manager at the Paul A. Schmidt Violin Shop in Brooklyn uh, Center, Minnesota. And as we're talking uh, during the break, he was cracking a few of his knuckles, and that made me nervous. <laughs> Should you be doing that? It's, you know, it's a release of the gases, and, it you know, without doing it, it does end up tensing up. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I've always been, always been a fan of knuckle cracking, so, yeah, yeah I feel good. Uh, do you feel nervous about your hands? 
Um, it's definitely a stressor. Yeah. Um, you know, with, you know, really heavy duty physical sports, you have a lot of big muscles. And so if, you know, you, you know, you know, your thigh or, you know, a different part of your body goes out or you stretch it too far, you can tell instantly. Yeah. With your fingers and the smaller, you know, the neck muscles, they're a lot smaller muscles. So if they get strained, you can't tell right away. Um, and that's that's the other discipline uh, part of music is being really in tune with your body, yeah. uh, making sure you don't push it too far and you understand that it is, you know, you're training these muscles to do, you know, in in comparison, you know, throw a football across an entire stadium. You have to train to that point. So you have yeah. to listen to the muscles. You have to feel um, feel the muscles and know when to stop and know when to break. Yeah. So it's definitely a constant, like, don't get, you know, don't get tendonitis. That's the big the yeah. string player thing. Yeah. Do you sleep on a pillow or a viola? <laughs> I sleep on a pillow. Okay. I'm just checking. <laughs> I'm just checking. So I'm always curious as to, to the, the influences, the, the viola players that leave you speechless. And maybe, maybe no one does because you're, you're so good. It's, there's, there's many. Um, I mean, violist specific, Tobias Zimmerman is probably one of the greatest violists of our time. Um, What's his name again? Tabea Zimmerman. Um, she is a German German violist and was, you know, one of kind of like the Hilary Hans, gotcha. and one of those mm-hmm. um, performers. She's absolutely stunning. I had the she was here actually in St. Paul. I want to say a year half and ago, a year and a half ago now, um, performed with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and I had the opportunity to stay, uh, sit front stage, nice um, front row. It was absolutely insane. Um, I've played, you know, and that's the other thing too um, with personal you play the same piece and you're going to play it completely differently and so she has a lot of pieces that she's played and edited and it does not work for me the way that she has it laid out um but just seeing her and hearing her perform it is such an ease and everything just flows so naturally um it's 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 insane i can only aspire to be that yeah so did you do the competition route as a kid um i didn't i actually um like I said, I wasn't one of those students who, you know, had the funds to be able to go into sure. college with a nice instrument. Likewise, I never had the opportunity to take private lessons as a younger student. Um, I, you know, was working a little bit and had, you know, we had the money to for me to take lessons once a month my junior year, which was definitely a help. Um, but my first delve into actual private lessons wasn't until I came to University of Northwestern. Wow. Um, and PSEO paid for it. Wow. So. That was my first exposure to it. Otherwise, um, you know, I I grew up just in school, learning from the teachers, practicing at home on my yeah. own and figuring stuff my own way. Um, yeah, so I never really did competitions. We had our, you know, local solo and ensemble competitions, and I did that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but never any national and any, any big competitions ever. Yeah. How much of music is, I'm going to probably say this, and it's not going to sound very smart, but there, there's a certain language to music where you'll see somebody that can play a saxophone and they can play a clarinet and they play piano. And I go, you get the language of music. It's like Mm -hmm. people that speak five languages Mm -hmm. and they go, well, I just, I know Italian and French and German. And Mm -hmm. um, go, that's a giftedness, right? It's definitely a giftedness and it's a discipline in and of itself. You can be gifted in a language, but if you don't put in the time and the effort, you're never going to learn it. So there, you know, there's a aptitude (laughs) to... You know, learning different instruments, but you also have to, you know, that has to be something that you love. Otherwise, you're never going to be driven to do it. Yeah, I took the Duolingo, I think, mm-hmm. the uh, course on the Internet for about six weeks, mm-hmm. and I can't say a thing, Josh. <laughs> I'm useless, I have to tell you. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely again like you know you're oh you're so talented and for for us musicians you know it's it's nice to hear but and, and you know deep down it's like well what's all the hours of work that I did then and, you know is that all for for granted so it is it's a lot of you know you do have to really work for what you want yeah too. yeah what did you hear on the streets from all the musicians during uh, n- no performance time during COVID. It was it was a lot for all of us. I obviously was still in school, so I wasn't making a living at that time performing. Mm-hmm. But I had plenty of uh, plenty of colleagues that were much older than I, um, where gigging was their their living. They were booked every every weekend, whether it was a gig at a bar, whether it was a wedding, and things like that. Um, it was a very difficult time at the beginning. Um, it was definitely a time of rest for a lot of people. You know. Being a gigging musician, um, you don't get much time to just kind of relax. It's always on to the next thing. It's always on to the next thing. So at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a lot of rest, but then it was a lot of time for yourself. It was a lot of, I knew a lot of professional musicians, even my teacher who plays in you know the Minnesota Orchestra, he went back to just the basic techniques. So it was a lot of time for everyone to kind of internally, you know, work on themselves as a musician to create, you know, create the better version of themselves. And then slowly you saw the virtual collaborations come to come to fruition. And that was really cool to see. Mm-hmm. Now, being a, a music major here at the University of Northwestern, uh, did you have a lot of great fellowship with other musicians? And are you following your, everyone's career as they're moving out into the world? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things in school. Definitely. We're all connected because we're all in the practice rooms until God knows when Mm -hmm. um, late in the night. So we do have that connection. But then afterwards, it's it's very different tracks. There's some people who choose not to continue that route and, you know, choose a completely different career. Um, There's other people that, you know, decide to take a year off with the intention of doing um, more freelancing or pursuing grad school and they never come back to it. And there is the very, you know, handful within, you know, I have, I have a friend of mine that we, we stay connected and we're both kind of on track to continue our careers. But we, we look back at all the graduated um, performing majors, whether that be in theater or in music, and there's not very many people that make it out into the industry. It is a very hard and competitive industry. And if you're not driven and if you're not committed to it, you will, the bus will just keep driving. Yeah, it's true. And it's also kind of a sad reality because mm-hmm. so many people have dreams mm-hmm. and they dream one day of uh, playing the way you play or being on a stage performing the way you can. And um, it's, you know, you, you, you never want to discourage anybody, but there's not as many people make it as would like to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and that's not to say that that can't continue to, you know, to be anything. I have a colleague at Schmidt who built the flute gallery um, and she went to college with, you know, a flute performance major, had the all the intentions to make it into a top tier orchestra. And she got to, I remember her telling me the story. She went to her grad school audition. She played the first piece and she was like, this is not for me. And she almost, you know, she just had a lesson with the teacher and just, you know, didn't end up Mm -hmm. actually pursuing that. And for her, playing was, you know, a musical instrument was her joy, but she really likes working in the commercial aspect, working with, you know, students and with players to find them their dream instrument. So it's not to say that if you, you know, you're a performance major and if you don't make it in the performance industry, you're, you're a failure. That's not it. Um, but you do sometimes find that some, some, you know, students don't end up actually going down that route and they find something that's better suited for them. Yeah. And it may be in music. It may be not. Yeah. Where's your dream location to play? 
Um, I don't really know. I, because of how competitive it is, I have stayed very far from kind of putting my sights on an, an orchestra or a location. Okay. Um, but there's, there's a lot of different orchestras that I respect. I would, you know, I hope to leave, uh, the state for grad school just so that I have a little bit more experience, but I'd be, you know, if the opportunity came to itself and Minnesota Orchestra was willing to hire and I, if I, you know, get the job, that's an orchestra that I'd be happy to be with. Mm -hmm. Um, there's tons of different orchestras, um, that I really respect that I would be happy with. Yeah. Is there any orchestra you want to go watch somewhere around the world? Um, definitely the Berlin Phil. I think, um, they had a couple of virtual concerts that were free. Um, and so I had the opportunity to watch kind of through the screen and they, my opinion, one of the best orchestras in, in the world. Really? So that'd just be a, it would just be a joy to see them in person. That's a long-standing reputation they've had, isn't it? It is a very long-standing reputation, yeah. and they continue. They they haven't burnt out. They're always reinventing yeah. themselves as an orchestra. And, so. and Berlin's a very cool city. Very. I have, I have not been. been. Yeah, yeah, I haven't I've either. never been. <laughs> but uh, friends love it. So, Josh, thanks so much for coming in, and, and uh, it's really nice to hear your story and your story right here at the University of Northwestern. Absolutely. Thanks Appreciate for meeting me. you. Yep. Josh Choi's been my guest. He is a viola virtuoso. It's always nice to hear about someone's music story and journey and how important it is to get involved in music and love music because everyone loves music. All right, that wraps up our show. Thanks for spending time with me today. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. I can't wait. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.